0: Welcome to the On the Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non dualistic, non violent, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and for the first time in 2020, well, I think we did release an episode very early in. 2021 I should say Uh, but for the first time physically gathered in 2021 I am here with Sue Grimmett Uh, nice to see you in the new year Sue nice to start the year like this and uh, Peter Catt is here as well lovely to see you Peter you well thanks
1: Dom yeah I'm fine thanks looking forward to this conversation
0: yes uh, look we're we're very uh, excited today this one's been a little while in the making this conversation I think the first uh, chat we had about it was a few months ago now We are with um, Dr. John Chenoweth, who is one of the authors of a new book, Sent, Reflections on Missions, Boarding School and Childhood, a collection of 42 stories reflecting on childhoods spent, separated from parents from very young ages due to a particular interpretation of the Christian faith and the ways in which it views sacrifice. Uh, In the course of this conversation, um, we are going to hear maybe one or two of those stories uh, from the book. We're going to unpack some of the theological underlying elements that, that um, create uh, these sort of conditions. Um, your, your voice, John, your story is just one of the stories in the book alongside others who experienced a similar childhood. Um, and so there's a, a, I guess there's a great deal of personal um, wounding that you've experienced as a result of what we're going to uh, uncover. And there is also um, a much broader sense of how many people this sort of um, theology has harmed uh, and with all that said, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much indeed. I'm feel honoured to be here.
0: And uh, we should also mention off the top, John, that you and I have a fun little link, which is a little bit <laughs> unrelated to um to today's conversation. I only recently learned as we were preparing for this, um, when I was talking to my mum, that you were actually my mum's obstetrician when she was pregnant with me back in 1993. So maybe more in a more true way than anybody else I've ever met, you and I go way back. <laughs> <Don't> you, <John? laughs> I, I think you're better
2: dressed today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I appreciate that. Um, well, look, we're, we're going to start today's conversation with just talking about your story and how this came to be um, the, the story of your life. And then we are going to, I guess, as, as I mentioned, explore some of the theological uh, elements of, of how yes. this can happen. Mm-hmm. To begin with your own story, um which might be, we should also mention, a very foreign one for people who aren't in a church or have never been in, in this style of a church, to imagine how this could ever have happened. Um, so stick with us for that. But to start with your story, let's go back a step with your parents' story. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents and how they came to be in the sort of faith tradition they were in?
2: Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, the question of how they came to, to be who they were is one that has been... Uh, very big worry and a concern to me. Trying to understand it, um, my mum came from um, a very Baptist tradition. Um, her uh, family was really very um, uh, tight, fundamental. Um, in those days, we didn't have fundamentalist as a description, but um, my her uncle wouldn't let her. Um, wear pyjamas to bed because that meant she was wearing pants and mm. uh, that was a male function. Mm. So there was a, a quite a tight control give you some idea of the culture. My dad on the other hand came from a broken family. Um, his, uh, his father separated from his mother and um, dad uh, was sent to BBC from grade one. He was a boarder, um, day boarder. He'd just bored during the weeks. Um, and um, then in grade 12, um, Joe Bjelki Peterson's uncle um, spoke at a inter school uh, crusaders meeting, which was a, a, a Christian group that ran in lots schools. And Dad heard Bjelki Peterson say if you become a Christian, god will keep your family safe and so uh, that was the start of a family tradition that dad being saved having a a real experience of meeting god led to him guaranteeing his family safety okay so out of that that was sort of just um uh, then dad uh, specialized in medicine um and after the war, he and my mum, not knowing each other at, too much at that stage, decided that they would go and spend the rest of their lives working with the China Inland Mission in China. It had been formed by Hudson Taylor. And um, after two years, they got uh, chucked out by the Communist Party. Mum has written in a letter her description of the uh, troops of the Communist Army coming through the streets of Shanghai early one morning. She said they looked much better dressed than the Nationalist Army. Anyway, we, we then went, uh, um, came back to Brisbane. I, I wasn't born. My mum fell pregnant after some delay and that child died at the moment of birth. It was a fresh stillbirth. Uh, that was devastating for my parents. And as part of working through and understanding this recurrent failure to achieve what they wanted to achieve, um, Dad prayed and said, God, if you give me a child, I'll go back to the mission field. So that child was me. I was born. Um, Dad by that stage had set up in general practice in, in Ascot. And so he was, um, he'd become less keen. And so he decided he'd lay out a a fleece or a test to see if God really wanted him to go. And so he said, Lord, if I can lead 15 people to become Christians in the intervening time, um, that's a sign that you really do want me to go. And it happened. And the last late last year I met someone who said to me my family was part of that 15 and our family has been diverted into a new path through that event so all of this contributed to a very strong history that my dad had real conversations with God and that he knew the will of God so they went to Thailand and I was four years old at the time, um, and um, I had a sister, um, and she was two years old, and so we went out there. Now, the mission um, that Mum and Dad had gone to China with, the China Inland Mission, had become the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and the the mission um, had had to educate their children. Um, somehow in the middle of China. And what they decided to do was to set up a special school, primary and secondary, in the Shandong province of China, which is uh, in a beautiful place called Chifu, a coastal town, cool, uh, lovely climate. And um, that had been formed in about 1880s. In 1951, I think it was, um, the mission was chucked out of China and so when they moved into Southeast Asia they they took the name Chifu and they set up boarding schools Chifu school now back to my story it was always planned that I would go to Chifu in being sent in, in being called to save the lives of the people going to hell in Southeast Asia my parents Right from the start, knew that I would have to be sent away, and so I was told that. And here, my dad has got this strong story of knowing the mind of God. God wanted me to go to boarding school hmm. at the age of five and a half, um, and so I went. We left my parents in Bangkok station. We travelled with a small group of other students for two nights travel, three days, um, three days, tra- uh, three days travel, two nights. Um, and we arrived up in the Cameron Highlands of the middle of Malaya, just uh, uh, 5,000 feet up in the sky. Beautiful spot, tropical jungle, steep mountains. The school um, was in an old English bungalow, um, a lovely old place built of stone. And uh, it was a beautiful school. Um, about, it's really hard to know how long it was. I think it was within the first few weeks of arriving. I suddenly knew that this was all wrong. At five and a half, you could, you could tell that. Where were my mum and dad? I wanted my mum and dad. Mm. And so I I got my water bottle, I got my my raincoat, and I walked down the crunching uh, drive to the entrance of the property. There were two stone gates there, um, pillars, and then I got there and I looked around, and all I could see was jungle. All I could hear was cicadas and and birds and noises and the gibbering of monkeys a long way away and I remembered the stories of tigers around the place and there'd been an insurrection Um, this was just before in the late 50s and um, and so there'd been a warfare there was an army camp not that far away and my heart just failed and I, I sat down beside the the pillar of the gate and I cried and after about two hours, I turned around and went back into the school. As part of this coming together thing, I actually found another, another person, a guy called Andrew, who remembers that event still. Mm. It was lovely to have the confirmation that my memory had actually been true. And so after that, I settled in. I buried all of that stuff, and uh, through my adult life, I just thought, yep, that was tough, but I developed resilience, and um, I got on and lived my life, and here I am. So how many years did you spend at the boarding school? I was there grades one and two. Then grade three, we came back um, and did grade three in um, Brisbane at the Nunda State School, and then went back to um, the Cameron Highlands for grades four, five, and six. At the end of grade 7, the mission policy had become that you should be sent home to your home country because in previously, uh, in China, you were there for all of your education and they found that people just never fitted back in. And so the policy was, okay, this is what happens to everybody. At the end of grade 6, you get sent home to your home country. And so I went home. I got on a plane um, alone, flew home to Brisbane and my grandmother met me and I stayed with her until my parents came back. They came back for furlough and during that time it became apparent that both Robin and I, my sister and I, needed um, parents and so they retired from the mission. And Mm -hmm. um, I've completed my education here in Brisbane, specialised in uh, medicine, then I, I became an obstetrician gynaecologist, delivered babies. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, And then I uh, I developed an interest in infertility work and I finished up uh, at the Monash Flower IVF unit at the Wesley Hospital, um, which I retired from uh, three years ago now. So
0: I guess the the first question I want to ask you after, after you've just shared that, at what stage... So you said you were a few weeks in when you sensed this is all wrong yes, and then you buried it yes. when did that next come up again this is or that was in hindsight perhaps all wrong was it a year after that the next time you remember experiencing that or was it
2: much later very much later I was 60 years old yeah, okay so what, what happened was that a, a few old students had started to get together and as they got together they realised In the UK and Europe they realized that there was a lot of damage done and as a consequence one of them approached the mission and said hey guys do you understand what the consequences of these decisions were and the mission thought about it and to their great credit they sent out a letter of apology to all of us that they could find. Record-keeping was non-existent, or it seemed non-existent to us. But um, we, we, um, out of the blue, I got a letter from the Overseas Missionary Fellowship that said some people were damaged by being sent away to Chifu. Um, we invite you to come back to a conference on the grounds of the old school, which is now a conference centre, and, um, and explore with us um, the meaning of what happened I, re- I got this letter and I said "Ha, doesn't affect me I've had a good life everything's gone well um, I've got resilience that's what it gave me Sunday lunch our family gathered together and I said hey guys look at this letter I got and I read it out and I started crying what the next Sunday, my eldest son hadn't heard the, the apology and I read it to him. I started crying again. I'd already written to the OMF and said, um, Oh, look, I haven't got, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, I can't come. But after that, I wrote back and said, You know what, I, I need to come. And we went back. And that was an extraordinary time. There were about 80 ex students there and um, each of us thinks we're individuals. But when you get together with a whole bunch of people who went through the same religion, the same stress on family life, the same separations, the same broken families, um, you see, hey, that's why I do that. I understand. And it was just like someone turned the lights on and it was just an extraordinary experience on the Thursday of the week that we were there they'd said we'll go across to the old school which is now called the bungalow and that's the school that I started off in and in fact that's where I ran away from so we climbed through the jungle and we came down to those very gates <laughs> yeah even now I feel uh I feel moved. Um I just fell apart when I saw those gates. And I had no idea that all that pain was was in there. And so the answer to your question, Don, is that it took till I was sixty years old mm. till I realised that something was very, very wrong in me. And it went right back to that point.
3: Wow.
0: Yeah. So you were there with your wife?
2: Yes, yeah, so I'd said to uh, my wife Wendy. I said, "Wendy, look, we'll, we'll go to this conference. It, look, it's not very relevant to me, but let's let's just go there, and then I'll show you this beautiful place that I had my my schooling in." And um, of course, we didn't skip off as I'd planned. We spent every single second in, in that conference that we could that I could possibly get.
0: And someone who has. Who you've shared life with, yes. seeing you go through this. Yeah, how did she respond to it?
2: Um, look, I have to say, um, the journey since that time has taken me six or seven years now, and uh, gradually, gradually, it it's been dealt with. But I couldn't have done it without her walking with me.
0: Mm. It's a, it's an incredible, I mean, I guess what it shows is that things that might feel like small decisions at the time or necessary sacrifices at the time are actually the kind of things that leave imprints much deeper than, I guess, than we know that you spent most of your life thinking it built resilience. (laughs) What do you think of that now? Do you think that was you just, I guess, trying to, trying to live a different or, or trying to find meaning from it?
2: i I think what what it showed me was that for my parents to give me away they had they, the, the structure of faith that they were in was so strong that it absolutely had to be right mm. every part of it had to be right um, the you know i i mean. <laughs> One of the things I, I, I often come back to is that the mission's motto was Jehovah Jireh, which is God will provide. And the belief was that God would provide to keep us safe, us kids. All of us came from broken apart families, but we've been broken in God's name. And so that meant that he would look after us. When we all got together again, we actually found that that wasn't true. And when you see a a group of people who've been through the same experience and you see um, suicides, drug problems, um, religion, faith problems, um, relationships um, shattered. um, One of the uh, counsellors who was there afterwards said to me, that it was carnage and that was the other major discovery of coming together. Do you
0: think your, your parents ever had any sense of what they were doing? I, I, either then or in the years that followed did they ever did you ever have any sense that they understood in any way?
2: I, I think speaking on behalf of the Chief Who Reconsidered movement I think that's been one of the hardest issues to deal with because all of us love our parents Mm. and you don't want to trash your parents and you don't want to make them feel bad. And yet they did something really bad. And how do you reconcile that together? And that's been extraordinarily difficult. For me, my parents have both died and so that has allowed me a freedom to explore the issues that those whose parents are alive still sometimes don't have. Um, but as I look back on it, I remember three occasions, I found it in the letters and things, three occasions in which mum said to me, um, how do you feel about chifu, John? And each time I said, oh, it was great, Oh, it was fantastic school, beautiful spot, oh no, I wish my kids could go there. I wouldn't say that now.
3: Mm.
0: Um. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about the the hesitation in her, maybe, and the oh, yeah. clearly yeah. the responsibility you felt to to validate her decisions at the time. Which I I, don't, I mean, I'm not I, I'm not sure how much you vividly remember about day to day life in the school. Yeah, but I imagine being alongside every, other people who are going through the exact same thing. That was the sentiment that you were all convincing yourself this is necessary you're all buying into the same narrative your parents had bought into is that fair
2: at the age of five and a half i was praying for each mission station by name each missionary by name and i went i went to school the first night on the train no comment the second night we stayed in a guest house and the woman who had met us from the school wrote to my parents and said John uh, John had a little cry late last night, and um he she said he settled quickly when we read some um songs to him or something I, I can't remember. Um, the next morning he he got up and said, "I don't know what was wrong with me last night, Auntie, whatever her name was." Um, uh, I must have been very tired. that's why I had a cry. Um, I was on board. That my part of saving the millions of Asia was to be sent away. And that's the structure of life that I had until I was 60. Yeah. Yeah. Sue, so,
0: I mean, this isn't the first time you've heard John's story, um, but it's still hard to hear. Yeah. So hard to hear, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I guess that the most tragic thing of hearing the story again is is hearing you know, what would have been the conflict in the parents as they mm. sent them away, that sense of acting against your own desire to care for your child, to be with your child and having something, having an institution that would override it not with, um, with sort of their theology as well as the done practice, as well as the culture, all those overlays that are so strong that a parent would deny their own strongest instinct to love, care and protect and keep their children beside them. That, that's to me, but I also see, this is, I think um, John's story is very powerful because I think it's a revealer for us. I think, yes, this is one context and most of us are sitting there saying, well, we were never sent away as five-year-olds by missionary parents, but those of us who have had very um, literalistic, fundamentalist upbringings, will recognize some elements here, mm-hmm. recognize that sort of element of an override of your own better self um, for because there is, you're outsourcing your life to an extent to another authority and you're told, and if you are a really earnest believer, you will try your darndest to conform to that and there's the tragedy. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we, we
0: were talking just before we recorded and I mentioned some of the, the parallels I hear in this story to the Chris Chabbs podcast we did back in 2019 um, mm. about his experience going through same-sex conversion therapy, um, you know, and, and this idea that people in their desire to follow the faith, in their desire to do what they believe God is telling them to do, actually are able to act in really violent, wounding ways that That somewhere in part of them, somewhere inside them, they know at the time is wrong, but they actually let their idea of God make them act cruelly it is is it peter is it to you one of the mysteries still of of the faith that that for many people, their version of God actually takes them further away from kindness and compassion
1: yeah it 's a constant um, shock to me really. Um, but there's another, there's another element into it I just wanted to capture, which is that the wider culture makes a similar demand on a whole heap of people as well. In that um, culture, whether it's church culture or even everyday culture, makes demands on us that actually makes us fight the better angels of our nature. So the number of people who get to be in their 50s or 60s who look back and realise that, the, the work ethic demanded that they neglect their children. It's just as powerful. I think the mm. harmful, mm. Uh, just coming back to your question, I think the the bit that does the most harm is that in the religious setting we give that authority to the ultimate principle that demands... You know, for, for God to demand a sacrifice from us is something you can't negotiate with. So if you're God or your image of God is demanding sacrifice of you, you just have to go completely against your better nature. But I think we need to hold on to the fact that the culture, you know, our capitalist culture about work and achievement Mm -hmm. and Mm. you know, and and still doing that same stuff about, you know, providing for the family. It's the same narrative. Mm. You know, a good provider will uh, miss out on three months of their children uh, formative stuff because they're working somewhere else because they're doing the best thing by the kid and yet you know, same story you, know, you get you get people to tell their story about where their parents were when they were young and they will tell you exactly the same sort of stuff of I wish my parents had been around when I was younger because I needed I needed the support of family and they were off doing stuff you know, I, I worked for a, um, a quite a while when I was younger as a, in a youth crisis centre in King's Cross and most of the kids who were there were from really wealthy families mm. and they were there because they felt neglected by their families. They would kept on pushing and pushing and pushing to see you know, that they, they would escalate their behaviour in the hope that their parents would push back and their mm. parents were so busy earning money that the, what their parents did was throw money at them so that the parents could keep doing the cultural stuff Um, of earning lots of money to provide for these kids. And all the kids wanted was a parent to say, stop doing that because I love you. Mm. And so we had, you know, in the common imagination, people thought that all the kids on King's Cross streets would be from the hopeless families, in inverted commas, from the western suburbs. Most of them were from the super wealthy families in the eastern suburbs. Wow. because the culture had actually taken hold of the families yeah. and said yeah. to them, you have to do this. We demand sacrifice. Yeah. So we're actually looking at not just a religious problem, we're looking at a deep cultural problem. The ways and in
0: which we act against our yeah. instincts. and so there are
1: people who'd be criticising you know, religion for doing this are playing it out in a secular... You know, the secular God is just as strong.
0: yeah.
1: And so we actually have to unmask a whole lot of Western culture and what John's doing for us is unmasking something that's so deeply done in the West that none of us escape it.
0: Yeah. And I suppose, it, well, it makes me ask you, John, um, just as a, as a human reflecting on all of this. Yes. Um, obviously, the reflection came when you, your kids were not young kids anymore, but as a father, how do you reflect on, on it? Does, has, does that add a different element to it as well?
2: Oh, I... I i can't imagine how Mum and dad did it you know it, it's it, it it's i've come back to you uh, peter uh, in, in this um i i went through the process I, I i went through counseling and eventually we came to realize that the way to undo traumatic events is to which is defined as a, a trauma occurs occurring to a child where the child has no um, parent or um, carer to to deal help deal with it. Okay, so I, I went I went to this counsellor um, and said to Ulrika, um, can you help me to rework the memory of this traumatic event? And she said, sure. So we went together in the talk. I walked down the the driveway of the school. I sat down beside the gatepost as we were telling the tale again, recounting the story, the memory that I had that had been so painless and that had become so painful. And... I said what do we do now to Ulrika and she said well we'll wait and see who comes because what she was doing was making for me a new memory to take the painful memory to to cover it over and I sat there and I said well I don't know who's going to come because my parents sent me here and I don't actually at this moment believe in God um I'm not sure what's going to happen and she said let's just sit here for a while and we sat there and then my mum walked around the corner <laughs> and she gave me a big hug and said I, don't, I didn't know this was hurting you so badly let's go home and let's go back to Thailand and let's have a family conference and from that let's go back to Australia and that released me. I walked away from that, and I could again believe that my parents loved me. I knew they did, mm. but as a child, I just knew that I'd been put into second place. Which takes us back to the kids in Sydney. That mm. um, that the, they'd been put into second place. Yeah. That's what they saw. Yeah. It's not the words; it's the actions mm-hmm. that um, that that mounted.
0: And by parents, who are completely, have been completely convinced they are doing the right and loving thing. Yes, yes. that's the that's the bizarre thing about it is oh. it's not like these wounds are caused by parents who know no. they're no. being neglectful. Yes, no. they believe they're doing the right thing. It's it is a delusion of sorts. And I know Sue, there's actually an excerpt of the book that might be um, worthwhile reading
4: here. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about this section, um, which is a story told by someone who's called Linda, I think in this book. Um, what's interesting about this part is the how to deny your own feeling the training in denying your own feelings the training mm. in um putting aside what deeply you know to be true and she talks about and this is in a religious context she's talking about the the sermons and the hymns that urge us not my way but yours or the preacher would recount how i tried to do it in my own strength and i failed and i need you lord and Perfect submission or perfect surrender to the will of the Lord sung over and over with great feeling. So much of my experience was a day-by-day training not to listen to your own feelings. self actualization was the opposite of what we were groomed for. I submitted and submitted and submitted again. I listened and listened. Unfortunately, the will of the Lord often turned out to be the will of somebody very human who wanted to be in charge. Usually, but not always, it was a man. It wasn't my will, but it really wasn't the Lord either. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, in in this instance, and I think
0: for our listeners who've grown up in religious communities, can probably point to numerous examples. You know, if we gathered people in a room, um, just 100 people from different religious upbringings, the stories you'd probably hear of things like that People even not in religious upbringings, people who, for one reason or another, were coached away from their instincts to love and nurture Mm. and share life together, Mm. and ended up doing cruelty in the name of good. Mm. It's um, I mean, Peter, does it suggest a brokenness within within us, or is it just that we aren't reflective enough about what's actually going on?
1: Well, I mean, part of it is that the faith tells us that we're rubbish and that we need to be saved and. You know, or, or some tellings of the faith tell us that we're rubbish and we need to be saved. And so it tells us to discount who we are. I mean, I, mm. It's one of the things I find yes. most shocking about that portrayal of Christianity. Instead of us being seen as unique and wonderful and loved and... You know, starting from that is the point. You know, mm. When you start with the idea of total depravity and that we're um, all horrible... Um, it opens us to ultimate manipulation by that which is saying it's saving us. Um, So we really, a lot of this invites us to go back to first principles. And it also invites us to confront some of the stuff that's actually foundational. You know, a few years ago, I was reading a wonderful collection of um, short, reflections on jesus written by khalil Gilbrand, and it's called jesus the son of man and uh, Gil- Gilbrand looks at um, jesus through the lens of a whole bunch of different people who might have been around so he, he writes from mary magdalene's point of view and john and all those people but he also writes from people who we never hear from and one of them is the mother of a young man who goes to follow jesus she's a widow and she writes about how wicked jesus was because here i am a widow my only son who's my only source of support Mm -hmm. has been whisked away by this charlatan of a man who's convinced my son that he should follow him rather than look after his mother i wish that this man would die he is an absolute um, pox on my family he has caused me to be destitute i hate him he's wicked and i thought wow yes (laughs) Yes, <laughs> you know, yeah. and so that you know, that's and you know, we last Sunday read joyfully, you know, that um, Jesus walks up to uh, Andrew and says, "Follow me," and and Philip comes and his, Philip nicks off with Nathaniel and says, "Look, we found the guy that we should all be following. Let's leave our father, who's a fisherman, in the lurch with his boat by himself. Let's leave this young man's mum." And so part of, you know, there's some really basic stuff in the tradition that we all celebrate and then preach in our sermons about how following Jesus is great. Mm. And maybe some of it we just need to have another look at and look at other stories where Jesus does, like, you know, the the Gerizim demoniac, where the, the demoniac says, I want to follow you, and Jesus says, no, you stay where you are. Stay with your community. So some of it's going back to the way that the original story was captured. and We might actually have to confront some stuff that is so deep and so dark that we're going to have to say, okay, is this really what Jesus, who we are discovering Jesus to be, wants of us? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is really profound stuff because it's so the the idea of sacrifice and leaving is and you know the lord will provide that is you know a straight take out of a sacrificial story Mm. we're going to have to do some hard work but our culture is going to do the same hard work i mean it'll let the rest of the culture off the hook if we just say this is a religious problem
0: it does strike me uh, on the the religious front specifically though that jesus is called to die to self you know die to yourself Uh, might actually play into a lot of this that, oh, I feel like... I, I should care for my child yep. above everything else but Jesus calls me to die to myself yeah. which feels like if Jesus was in the room he would just put his head in his hands and say that's what you took out of that <laughs> that's, that's right. well, how on earth did you miss the point that vividly but misreading the death to self Sue, that's a big part oh, of this too I think it's a
4: huge part of that um, we have failed to realise that um, the whole the Christ message is about healing and wholeness of the self the love of the self and, and the love of others it's all caught up in the one package A love of God love of self love of others and that wholeness has to happen you don't keep dying to yourself in a way that means fragmentation or disintegration or you know uh, total um, loss of actual any agency because we've been empowered to be co-creators of the world and that so you can the dying to self is actually part of that active co-creation and being empowered to be yourself most fully Mm. somehow we've separated the diet of self from the and forgotten the part about being yourself most fully Mm. um recognizing that there's I, i do think that that god and the soul belong together and that is why there's this deep sense of of who we are and and the but the sort of denial of ourself when we get it wrong just leads to all kinds of um sort of subversion of things that are real and true and good in us and uh, it is one of the biggest pieces I think yeah
0: yeah absolutely so John just to I guess pick up your your story briefly I want to ask you about how when you started doing this work and realizing the pain that was involved in it how on earth are you sitting here meters away from a church now (laughs) (laughs) here at the St John's Cathedral like I I can see it out the back window I, I part of me wonders how you're not um, throwing up at the side of a church after what was done to you in the name of that—not tra- uh, this particular tradition, but the mm. church in, in some form. How did you go from how? How have you found a way to make room for that?
2: I'd read. Uh, i really reached a point of just seeing that God was a construct that we just needed it, and that we'd made it made it all up. Um. But that that event. That I described to you, where my mother came round the corner to me at the gate, in my false memory, my reconstructed memory, Mm. that took that away, and I knew God was there, and uh, you know, uh, Sue, you just talked about that that feeling in your Mm. in your spirit, and I knew that the problem had to be the constructs that we had put on God, not on God Himself, or him or herself and and so i I set out then to say okay i'm going to try and find that god i want to know that god and um i i I, I do get nauseated when i go into some standard churches I, i can't do it um but um one way or another Discovered that there was a church just around the place, from around the block from our place. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to know Sue. It's a, it's an Andrews uh, Anglican. That's been a brilliant good. One. <laughs>
0: yeah, it is. It is remarkable though, because um, for so many people, the church is the context of their foundational wounding. You know, whether it caused their parents to do to treat them in this sort of a way, whether it as they were at a very young age gave them something or put something on to them that was so toxic and and really has stayed with them for life. I've spoken about the tapes that many people get when they're young. I've told the story of um, signing the, the card to promise I wouldn't have sex before marriage before I really knew what sex was <laughs> and promising it to God with my signature. I think it was the first thing I ever signed, actually. Mm. But my point is that's, that's sort of the the baggage that so many people have. Yes. And, and yet it feels... Like you have been able to do this remarkable healing of realizing that was never God, even though it was in the name of God, mm. that was the, maybe as anti-God as it gets. And mm. how hard was it to do that 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 healing? I guess
2: um, it's a work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still not there, but I I, I guess um, Peter, the comment that you you talked about of of, of us being Jesus followers or following Jesus' way, um, I, I I really don't. I don't see my relationship with God as being a uh following those rules. I, I really have stepped away from that. I I think that I I ask Jesus to walk with me. And I think as we walk together, that gives me agency yeah. that I had
1: I really had lost. Yeah. Um I think agency is the key issue yes. is do we see ourselves as precious and, and given agency yes. and capacity, or do we see ourselves as um, not worth that? Or even worse, you know, the, one of the things that drives me most insane about religious talk is the idea that God's got all this planned. Oh. And so you, know, you you had to go to that place because God had planned for you to be there. And yes. so it wasn't even your parents who made the decision. It was sort of something God had preordained and Mm -hmm. I just look at the people who often tell me that and the tragedies in their stories and think my goodness what a monster your God must be that you can actually still use the word God's plan when your child gets run over by a bus I mean you know it's just and so agency I think is the key issue is if God creates us to love and if you know if love is anything you have to have agency Mm -hmm. you cannot love without agency and anything that if we don't have agency then all the stuff that we talk about in terms of love and doing anything and being a transformative presence is all dross Mm. and Mm. it comes back to agency and if Mm. you're going to be an agent you have to be valued Mm. and if you're valued then you won't be asked to do something that
4: destroys either your agency or your sense of self-worth I think part of this is a re-education of the way we understand the way God works in us. I know I, um, learning to recognise what is the work of the Spirit is part of this. Because Richard Faye, Domstad recently was preaching at our church, and he had a little line that was in the middle that just you know it stood out to me so much. And apologies, Richard, if I get this wrong. Uh, but it was like the work of God in us always begins with empowerment mm. you know if we could begin if we can because yeah. re- I know and if those of us who've been on this faith journey for a long time will recognize that that is the way that God works in us that that recognize those God moments that's what they're like but I know myself that I would have that experience and I would narrate away against it thinking that's me that's my ego that's you know and uh don't actually recognize that god wants to give us that agency Mm. is an important part i think Mm -hmm. of the way we spiritually educate people yes Mm.
0: Uh, it, it seems to me um important that we discuss the sacrifice of isaac in this particular moment here because it is a story from the bible that um, probably justified a lot of what happened in, in your particular instance. Can you just talk about um, what that story, uh, what your reflections on that story were are now, John?
2: Uh, um, I, I wish I could say I really knew. I, so the story is, isn't it, that, that Abraham heard from God that he was to take Isaac up a mountain and he was to put Isaac on a, an altar of stone and he was to kill him and burn him. And this was the son that had been promised through whom um, the people of Israel would develop from. And uh, Abraham did that. He laid Isaac on the altar and got his knife out and God said to him, Stop, there's a ram uh, over there in in the bushes caught by its horns. Use that instead. Um, the only thing that I can see that makes sense is that the culture of the time was very much one of child sacrifice. And it's, it seems to me that you can sort of make the argument that God was showing Abraham that he did not want child sacrifice, that he did not want sacrifice, that actually he was going to provide a way out. And I, 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 I'd I like to think that that is the way around this very, very difficult passage.
0: It's funny when I, when I hear that that story, as you recount it again there. I mean, I remember myself hearing it as an eight-year-old when my dad was a pastor and hiding from my dad the rest of the day, worried that he might be asked to kill me. Um, but, <laughs> but You know, I'm like, well, the other dads in the church might say no, but he's the pastor, he'd have to listen if God told him. But there's also this wow. sense, um, <laughs> there's, oh God, yeah. Is, yeah. There's also this sense of me though, Peter, that what we're talking about, about this whole conversation about people acting against their instincts, acting cruelly in the name of God, that maybe that's what was happening in that story. Yeah, was that Abraham, oh. like um, you know, so many in this culture. Acted against his instincts to take Isaac up the hill and put him on the altar.
1: Well, we have to. Well, I want to believe that. Um, and the thing to remember is that when this happens, Isaac is an adult. Mm. So getting yes. Isaac bound and on the altar would have required the most amazing act of violence on behalf of Abraham. Mm. You know, we we most of the art mm. has it as uh, uh, Isaac as a little kid mm. or even baby. Um, mm. But you know, in terms of the chronology, we're talking about. A fairly old guy taking his son up there and battering him. And, you know, part of the story is, you know, Isaac says, So where's the sacrifice? and Abraham says, God will provide which is why that um, phrase scares the bejesus out of me when <laughs> people when people use it because they're usually using it in a context where we are facing something mad and they just say, Oh, God will provide um, you know, you hear it in Parish councils from time to time we're in debt, but oh, God will provide. And yeah, but you know that this the story needs to be confronted. The only thing that redeems it for me is that according to a Hebrew scholar I've read, there are different use, terms of the use of God in that story, and the God who is asking for Abraham to kill Isaac is one term, and the one who says don't do it is another term. And it's it's almost as if in the story there's actually a battle going on in Abraham as to which God or which vision of God or which version of God he's going to listen to. Mm. And so he's actually, he, it, it could be the ultimate discernment story between God and an idol. Mm. And it's the idol that's asking for the sacrifice. And if we read it that way, which is the way I choose to read it because otherwise it's a horrendous story if it's the one God having and the Midrash actually wants to deal with it by actually having Satan involved and Satan is the one telling Isaac to um, so you know the the tradition is pretty uh, complexified or concerned by the story in itself you know so the rabbis were dealing were wrestling with it over the ages Uh, for me if if it's those two images of the two uses of the divine different words for the divine I think that's a really helpful story because then it, it says to us, well, discern well as to whether the, you're listening to the voice of God or whether you're listening to an idol that is a projection and get it right or someone's
4: going to die mm.
1: or and you're going to die.
4: Yeah. I, I think and along though, the only redeeming thing that I see in this is I think we're meant to be haunted by this story. That this is a, a haunting story because it cuts through to the, some of the greatest dangers we face mm. yeah. or, as human beings yeah. and that's why it keeps coming up now john's wife Wendy is an amazing artist and i admire her work very much and uh I, I don't know if i've got this right john but the the painting um, and we'll put probably some links of this up on our Facebook page too because the painting we used in the book launch, we, we displayed mm. the painting in the book launch, but there's um, Wendy painted numerous paintings which actually it shows the power of symbol because the, uh, the, some of the, John's story has been caught up and, and has worked its way out through Wendy's art. Mm. And that one, there's a, there's a painting of sort of a, a boy-man figure on a, on a pile of rocks and it's the most powerful image. And it, I think it showed... To me, it, it again underlines that this story haunts us. And I think it's meant to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the the difficulty, of course, is that it's not just that incident
2: that is about sacrifice. No. In fact, you know, um, Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. you know, like what was going on there? Yeah. Um, why was the animal acceptable but the vegetable wasn't um uh, hebrews suggested that it was because of attitudes but you know that's that that, that's there and then you've got uh, abraham and isaac and uh, there's just sacrifice after sacrifice leading up to god sacrificing his own son which is the most difficult of all to understand um
1: if if it's to be read as God sacrificing his son. That's, yeah. that's yeah. the point. If we, fo- if, we, <laughs> yeah. if we follow that metaphor, we see it completely disrupted in the yes. Jesus story. Which yes. Is, yes, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's the conclusion yeah. that I've, I've had to reach. I, no, I, I, think, the I think only unless God is a monster, yes. we have to see that it's the end of sacrifice, not the ultimate yes. sacrifice. Mm. Yeah.
0: I remember in our last episode with Richard Holloway, we were exploring the church and sex and that whole journey. Um, the church's approach to to sex and sexuality and just having this profound sense we discussed at the time that it's just been above everything else such an enormous waste of time i think about this too and how many communities have held you know all these ideas for mission and long prayer sessions and all this sort of stuff all with the idea of trying to be faithful but have just kept hurting people and continue to keep hurting people, keep causing damage again and again and again. Whereas if we just actually all were able to slow down and speak honestly, so much of this could be avoided. You know, if we, if we and I know you said, Peter, this might've been actually the episode before with Janice McRindle. You said, you spoke about the amount of pain we could avoid causing each other if people would just reflect a little bit more just be a little bit more reflective not even you're not even asking people to go on top of a mountain for a weekend once a month
1: but I think what we we, I think it comes back to the issue we've already uh, talked about is that we're taught not to trust ourselves and not and taught not to honour our own stories if we if you know if if people could be given the space to tell their stories and be honest about what they're actually feeling and experiencing without it being filtered through some lens of what's in and what's out, what's acceptable, what's faithful, what's faithless. I mean, it's one of the most damaging things we do. You know, um, we've, you know, we've talked to in the past about people pretending to talk in tongues because that's what the culture required of them. and we've, you know, It just goes on and on and on. If, if, if people were allowed to simply be themselves And we just shared our stories, our doubts and our loves. That's another sort of Richard Holloway sort of uh, term. If we were just set free to follow the human one by being human. Mm. I think that, you know, for me, that's what Jesus asks of us. is just get with the program, people. People matter. You matter. The person opposite you matters. Listen to them. And love them for for who they are not for who you want them to be or who they imagine they should be just love each other Mm. it's not rocket science (laughs) (laughs) but it is so radical that we're still trying to get with the program
0: yeah yeah I suppose it's radical in its
1: tenderness and its It's gentleness It's not, not trying to revolutionise the world, yeah, and just the fact that you you know, you are. You know, imagine, imagine if if all those people that raided the capital um, last week, as we're recording this, in that insurrection, someone was able to say to them, "Wait a minute, you're really loved. Hmm. Let's stop and talk, because hmm. you're loved, rather than having to be angry or feel like you're dispossessed or you." Know, white inferiority complex or whatever it is just be valued hmm. but you know the culture is going to have to change because the culture says you're not valued religious tradition says you're not valued yeah yeah so
0: look we're going to end the podcast in a moment with um dr melissa agnew reading out the the foreword of the book before we do that though John, I just want to ask you about the, the book itself, just um, reminding people it is Sent, Reflections on Missions, Boarding School and Childhood. It is a compilation of stories of people who who experienced what you experienced. What was the process of compiling this book like, hearing these stories, sharing stories? I imagine it was, um, it was quite powerful and quite healing.
2: The stories that we told each other was really the power of our coming together. Um... And we formed a Facebook group, stayed in touch, explored the issues, for example, the Abraham-Isaac story. Lots and lots of various complexities of this whole thing. Um, And eventually we we started to realise that actually there isn't anything published about being sent away in the name of God to a boarding school in a third world country uh in a, a third culture country um and 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 so we thought look we somehow we, we've got to let let the world know that's being a bit over ambitious maybe but we certainly wanted the christian world to understand because this is it's a really complex issue mm. i mean, I'm, i i i don't know what this will come across as when you present a story it's always hard to know um, what it will uh, sound like because clearly these were good people they were doing good things they were in a good tradition um, they really love god and so y- you can't <coughs> slam dunk at all you know it wasn't rubbish it was good but that out of that goodness came bad and that's that's that that's the issue you have to wrestle with as a the evangelical church must be wrestling with in north america even now Mm. Um, can i uh, finish by just saying that paul young was the speaker at the second of our conferences paul young wrote a book called the shack which is a a fiction um, in which someone who's had terrible injury meets up with a three-person god at a shack And the God that we call the Father is a uh, black African um, mother. And her way of meeting people is to say, Ah, Dom, so good to meet you. I'm especially fond of you. Ah, Sue, I'm especially fond of you and that concept of of that love that peter was just talking about that that we are all loved Mm -hmm. uh, in a really deep and personal way that is that that uh, meant that um i was really i read that as i was flying flying across uh, to uh, singapore um, to drive uh, to go up to the second conference and uh, I went through a whole handkerchief reading the book. <laughs> I yeah. think that was pre-COVID, thank goodness, or else I'd have been chucked off the back of the plane. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, it's a beautiful book. And I think for many people, it's had that sort of, yeah. wait, you're telling me that it's just love? Yes. Could I dare to believe it's that good? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, look, there's a the, the book, as we mentioned, is called Scent. You can um, find it. There's a website, John. Do you know the website? off the top of your head oh, or should we just put a link in the description yeah well, let's put a link we'll put a uh, link in the podcast description you will see a link um, assuming we remember to do it if we don't please message the page it's and sent, up, we'll put it up
2: there storiescom there
0: we go scent-stories.com so um, head there have a look at it um, John thank you so much for sharing this conversation with us I imagine I mean, it's it's evident every time this comes up, it is it is still stuff that is really um, mm. raw in many ways and probably will be for mm. for as long as you live. So we're so grateful for your vulnerability and, and for sharing the conversation with you.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's and, been an absolute delight.
0: And uh, as I did mention, we will uh, close the podcast now with the foreword of the book written by Paul Young, read by Dr. Melissa Agnew at the launch of the book recently.
3: In Isaiah, God says... I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. In Amos he says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ hates sacrifice. The story of Abraham and Isaac was not about a test to see if Abraham still made God his number one priority competing with children for attention. Rather, I am not a God who will ever require the sacrifice of children, ever. And since you are stuck inside a delusion of self-hatred that requires a sacrifice that someone must pay, let me reveal to you my name, And character. I will provide myself. Today a goat with its head caught in a crown of thorns and one day I will be the lamb you think you need and by that submission to you together we will finally and forever end sacrifice. How scandalous that this God needs nothing.